Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I mean to plant a flag in the sand for conscious, willful people to gather, organize, empathize, and capsize the established order of things. Our opposition? Team Machine, Team Capitalism, Team Algorithm, Team No Team, I'm my own team. Being human is a team sport, so thanks for playing. Playing for Team Human today, activist, Guardian columnist, and author of Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis, George Monbiot. We don't have to tell a new story of the past. It's a new story of the future. Our task is to tell. And in telling it, if we tell it right, we can make it true. George will be explaining how the myth of humans as rational, selfish actors needs to be abolished but that something, some other story we can relate to, needs to take its place. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. A whole lot has been happening on Team Human this month. Our producer, Stephen Bartolome, is going to be moving back to Omaha, Nebraska, but will be still putting our show together from there. It does mean that his work will have to be funded entirely from our subscriptions, though, instead of the part-time salary I was able to get him through Queens College's Laboratory for Digital Humanism. So we'll be expanding our fundraising efforts over the next month. For now, though, if you can subscribe to Team Human through Patreon, it would be a great help. I'm taking nothing from the funding myself, but we can use the money to pay Stephen for the countless hours of production and engineering he's doing and research, to hire sound recordists who are local to our remote interview guests in order to get real live audio from them, and to pay for all the hosting and technology that goes into this. Our subscribers can get cool stuff like copies of my books, find the others tote bags, access to the Team Human Slack, premium content, and free admission to Team Human Live events. 
We have two of those coming up. The first one in New York City at the Alchemist's Kitchen on June 21st with Soma Space founder Mark Filippi. And the next one in London with Pat Cadigan and Rupert Sheldrake on July 9th. Details are at teamhuman.fm. That's teamhuman.fm. Just click on the menu that says live events. We'll be setting a fundraising goal next month, and if we reach it, I'll be launching a special bi-weekly show, premium content for Team Human subscribers in the form of a live call-in show where I'll engage about pretty much anything people are interested in hearing about. Kind of a, an ask-me-anything, uh, no-holds-barred open discussion. And this will be where people can talk with me about their efforts at social justice, remaking the economy, writing their dissertations connecting to other people, and more. For me, it's also a great place to direct all those emails from people wanting answers or to discuss things or to have something talked about on the show. This is a way to do it, and it's also a way to workshop some ideas that then we can put on the regular uh, non-premium show, this show. More on all of this soon, but for now, please subscribe at Patreon at any level. That would be patreon.com slash teamhuman, or just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. And please just tell others that humanity now has a team and to uh, come on over here and have a listen. I've been appearing on a lot of other people's podcasts for the past few months, I guess, it's a way of practicing what I'm preaching. I mean, how can I ask people to be on this show without agreeing to go on other people's shows? But what I've learned is that a lot of other people's shows aren't really other people's shows. I mean, I feel a little bad saying it, I guess. I don't know if it's totally fair, but it feels to me like some of these shows I've been on are kind of fake podcasts, that they're... they're brand extensions of an organization or a company or even a foundation or something good, but they're not produced by those places. There are, and bless their hearts, some of them are qualified, but there are these professional podcast production companies that get hired by an organization or a corporation to do the whole podcast. So they have people who are paid and they're like, it's like journalists almost. They find a subject, they find people to talk to, they conduct a whole bunch of interviews, and then they write a script for the celebrity whose podcast it actually is, whether it's an author or the head of a foundation or the director of an organization or a politician. And then that person reads the script that was prepared for them by the company that makes the podcast. So there are companies, and they might make 10 or 20 different podcasts about different issues. So there's a technology company, maybe they have a podcast about the future, or there's a foundation, and they might have a podcast about education or something else. But what they actually amount to are brand extensions. They're not, they're not the hosts of the podcast aren't even actually talking to the people on the other side of the conversation. And they're filling the podcast space, this kind of professionally created, and professional is not even the right word, but, but uh, uh, made to order 
uh, almost industrial quality podcasts. And as I look at it, they're kind of crowding out the human connection that's being offered by this new, different, non-broadcast, non-commercial space. It's Actually, it's why I didn't blog. I was friends with with Evan Williams and uh, some of the people who were creating the very first blog platforms like Blogger. And I didn't blog because I thought it was unfair. I had already had, you know, two or three books published by the late 90s when this stuff was coming out. And it seemed to me inappropriate as someone who had a platform, who had, I was writing a piece every other week in The Guardian. I I had a book coming out every couple of years. It seemed inappropriate of me to kind of crowd out the conversation happening on on Blogger and in social media uh, with with all the stuff I was doing. And I kind of drew this line between professional and amateur. I remember when Clay Shirky came out with his book called um, Here Comes Everybody, and it was really about the rise in amateur uh, amateur media and amateur everything and how um, this was going to, uh, uh, in a positive way, overwhelm the top-down production. And I, I think I might have been drawing the line in the wrong place, though. It's not between professional an amateur, it's between uh, human and corporate, or human and institutional, that these, and I'm calling them fake, they're not fake, but let's call them that anyway, these fake podcasts, these fake self-made human bottom-up media properties are institutional or corporate. They're, they're, yes, they're humans in these companies. They're humans in these uh, podcast studios, but they're not acting in human or transparent ways. If anything, they're camouflaging their participation in order to create a show that fakes what a real podcast is. They have scripts for the supposed speaker to read that are prepared by someone else. You know, no wonder any TV show or reality show or demagogue who goes off script gets such attention today. It's because even the spaces that are supposed to be inhabited by real humans are being inhabited by something else. But listen to these shows. Listen to how they are. You can hear it. You know, you can hear when it sounds more like some kind of a a produced NPR show or uh, nothing against produced NPR shows, but that's a different space. You can hear when it's a when it lacks the vitality of people taking hold of the media in order to connect in real ways with other people. You know it. You can hear it. You know, it's time for us to recognize and distinguish what is human from what is not. Our guest today, uh, George Monbio, is is an author, an activist, an organizer, a regular columnist for The Guardian, and a deeply human being. His most recent book, Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis, is just out from Verso. And it really looks at the the overwrought and overtold mythologies of the 20th century 
and how we can really write a new one together. Jeremy Lentz, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Molly Wright Steenson, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Damian Williams, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Ghislaine Boddington, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Eli Pariser, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Jason Louv, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today, George Monbiot author of Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis. If you listen closely to this extraordinarily human recording, you'll hear the delightful intrusions of George's children occasionally during the conversation. We wouldn't edit those out for anything. I'm, I'm really excited to speak with you. I I feel like you've reached so many of the same sorts of conclusions I have, only with um, greater intellectual rigor. Which, it, no, it's encouraging. It's encouraging, though, to see. And and not, uh, not so much because you went to Oxford, but in some ways because you rescued yourself yeah. um, from that. Um, and what I wanted to talk about before we get into your book, which is the, the, the most important thing, but I'm, I'm very interested in, in your path, particularly because instead of coming to these conclusions as I did through, say, experiences of theater and the failings of Aristotelian narrative or through the internet and chat rooms and watching it get taken over by business, mm. um, you spent time in the real world, you know, <laughs> actually with, with real people um, suffering and fighting in real ways. So I'm most interested to start in how you got yourself um, to Indonesia mm. and uh, your sort of the, the, your sense of of personal risk and danger, and what it's like, um, you know, as a, a at least a mildly coddled white European male to move into these spaces, and and sort of how how was that transformative for you? Well, I think the first thing to understand is I was a total nutter when I was a young man. Probably not much better now. <laughs> um, and you know, this is why wars get fought. Young men are just really stupid, and they don't understand such things as danger and safety <laughs> and uh, these fairly basic attributes which uh, most people seem to grasp instinctively but somehow mm -hmm. people like me just don't really have an instinct for. I, I'd begun when I left university or before I left university the only thing I wanted to do was to work for the BBC making investigative environmental programs and no such thing existed at the time and so I hammered on their doors until they finally let me in with the words, you're so effing persistent with no choice but to give you this job. Uh -huh. And it was a job which didn't exist, but um, I just wanted to go and expose the bad stuff happening to the living world that I loved and to the people um, on uh, whose lives depend on that living world. And we cracked some fantastic stories, some really great investigations. We found a bulk carrier, massive freighter ship had been... Um, deliberately scuppered off the coast of Ireland and was leaking oil all over it. Um, it was an insurance job, uh, which we managed to reveal. Um, 
We um, had the head of customs in Abidjan offering to sell us chimpanzees. I mean, there was all sorts of amazing mm. stories we cracked, and it seemed to be going incredibly well. And then Margaret Thatcher launched her coup against the BBC, where she basically sacked the director general, uh, um, just sort of uh, uh, attacked the budget and everything. And the very next day, my boss came in and said, that's it, we've been told no more investigative programmes. So mm. I thought, well, how I, all I want to do is investigative stuff. Um, so obviously I've got no future with the BBC. Um, but while I'd been there, I'd been working on what I was hoping would be a big series about the transmigration program in Indonesia, this horrendous sort of social engineering scheme um, by the Suharto dictatorship backed by the United States, the United Kingdom and the World Bank to move hundreds of thousands of people from the inner islands to the outer islands to basically sort of Indonesianize them and securitize them and ensure that there was no resistance to the the sort of centralizing power of the dictatorship. And you know, it was he, he Suharto was a Western asset, and so it was very much backed as a Cold War project with horrendous consequences, but nobody had properly reported it. Um, and so my idea was to go to West Papua, this occupied territory seized by the Indonesian government in the 1960s and occupied with brutality ever since, still is today, and um, find out what was going on. And, um, you know, my boss was backing me. It seemed like a great project, but suddenly I couldn't do it at the BBC anymore. So I left right. the BBC. I sold the idea to a publisher. I rang up a friend of mine who's a photographer and as mad as I am, and um I said to him, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to West Papua. It's extremely dangerous. And he said, yes. I said, I haven't asked you a question yet. He said, <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> and, um, and so these two um, slightly unhinged people set off and we spent six months working in West Papua. The only way of getting um, out to where we wanted to go was to cross the whole island on foot. Um, we got um, severely lost in the rainforests and uh, ran out of food for three days. We ate only rats and stick insects. And and you were attacked by bees or something too, right? Uh, hornets, yes. I, <laughs> I bumped into a hornet's nest and I was uh, stung into a poisoned coma. Uh, we got swept away down a mountain river. We got caught by the soldiers, uh, but by the military and put under house arrest while they tried to check out our forged papers. Now, is getting um, caught by soldiers this kind of thing that you see in a scene in the in a movie or a, a Netflix show with where you're worrying that they're actually going to shoot you dead? Oh, we were extremely worried about this because, I mean, this, you know, you've got to realize this dictatorship, the Suharto dictatorship was one of the worst the world has ever seen. Mm. I mean, this, you know, they, they it, it killed a million people. Um, the, the soldiers were a complete law unto themselves. And there they were, the occupying power in this nation, West Papua, that they were brutalizing. And there were, there were totally no holds barred. There was no restraint at all on what they would do. Now, the only thing they were worried about was that I had this pass written by the head of immigration police, um, stamped by with his stamp, signed apparently with his signature. And they figured that if they killed us and this pass was genuine, they would be in serious trouble. Mm. As it happened, I had stolen the pad of headed notepaper and the stamp from the head of immigration police's office in Jakarta, <laughs> written the letter um, myself uh, with the help of some Indonesian friends who got the language right for me and signed it myself. Um, 
um, saved for three days. <laughs> so your life was saved by a forged document. Well, well, no, well, my life was, was, was is severely endangered by a forged document because had they managed to establish a radio link and they spent three days trying, they would have instantly found out that this document was as phony as they might have suspected it was. <laughs> and we would have been um, in a shallow grave and they couldn't establish a link for three days. They tried and my hair was coming out in clumps, you can imagine, <laughs> but they, they couldn't get through. And so eventually they gave up and let us go. And then, so see, seeing this story up close, live in person, rather than on on CNN or BBC, um, that gave you uh, greater despair or greater hope or both? Well, the amazing thing in West Blackpool was that people were um, still resisting. There were still parts of the rebel army. The OPM was hiding in the hills and the swamps, armed only with bows and arrows. I mean, they really had no hope against this massively mobilized and funded Indonesian army supplied with all the latest weaponry by the US and the UK. But their hope didn't die. And it still hasn't died. You know, they're still in in a dire predicament with, um, you know, it's still under occupation. Uh, It's not a dictatorship in Indonesia anymore, but it's a pretty ropey democracy when it comes to the occupied territories. It's not a democracy at all. And um, and it's still basically the army in charge, just using it as a treasury, ransacking its forests and its reefs and its minerals, forcing West Papuans to work for very little on its projects. It's it's still a very grim situation. But you know the 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 West Papuans have incredible resilience. They keep going, and this is what I found. You know, in the other places I worked in Brazil and in East Africa as well, particularly Brazil, where. There's such strong political consciousness and people have fought back against so many attempts to deprive them of their freedoms and their basic rights. I mean, you went to Brazil, you're 26, and you get involved in the uh, the peasant land movement there mm. and end up beaten by police there, right? Yeah, yes. Um, I, I got um, uh, rather more involved than I initially <laughs> intended. <laughs> I uh, I was swept up in this extraordinary movement. This was before the Movimento Sentera, the um, the great landless movement, had really kicked off. This was more of a local movement of people trying to hold on to the land, which was being seized from them by these very rich people with massive urban wealth who were moving in and just grabbing the land and using it as collateral which they could borrow against because land was considered to be a stable investment. Um, mm. Speculative value was rising. They just wanted to um, to bet against it effectively. And they were depriving people who needed that land for their basic subsistence of their living and of mm. their food and of their communities. They were burning down their homes. They were driving them out, killing those who resisted, torturing people. And people were fleeing in their thousands, tens of thousands, uh, many of them ending up in the gold mines. I followed them into the uh, gold mines in the northern Amazon where they were working in horrendous conditions. But what I found was this one community uh, empowered by the liberation theologists in the Catholic Church and by their own incredible determination were holding out against Mm. everyone against the, the the big land barons who were moving in on them, against the police, against the judiciary, against the political system. Everything was stacked against them because the system was and now is again 
uh, just designed basically to rob people of their wealth and transfer it into the hands of extremely rich people. And, and so this inspiring, astonishing community of mostly illiterate peasants, but who could quote reams of Gramsci and Marx and uh, other political tracts because they, they had learnt it through an oral tradition where priests and, and, and a few educated peasants uh, would, would read um, these, these books in order to explain to people how and why they found themselves in their situation. And this understanding and knowledge and depth gave them a determination that other communities perhaps did not have. And so they just stuck it out and stuck it out. However many times people were killed, houses were burnt down, people were tortured, they just kept coming back. And eventually, uh, bizarrely, partly because I was beaten up um, and then... Um, a local newspaper had um, not entirely accurately reported my death at the hands of the military police, which then found its way into the Folio de San Paolo, a national newspaper, then caused a scandal, because it doesn't matter how many peasants you kill in Brazil, but if you kill a British journalist, well, that's a different matter, mm -hmm. um, which then led um, to the the, the um, local people winning their land dispute um, mm -hmm. through no active part of my own. It was just sort of <laughs> purely... <laughs> <laughs> this sort of weird concatenation of circumstances. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I was so astonished by their resilience and their strength and their toughness, which inspired me no end, that I effectively found myself working with them rather than just reporting on them. Well, it's interesting. And your experience and the way it was reported in some ways uh, – supports where you've come to uh i hate to fast forward but all the way to today but in some ways uh, for for these people getting out the right story about uh about their uh their situation true or not ended up having more impact on their fate than whatever facts on the ground they were trying to disseminate yes i mean i'd say the story of my death which was exaggerated um what was a fairly shallow one I and mean, it wasn't quite the sort of grand political narrative that i'm talking about right today but stories count um, and even uh, untrue and rather stupid stories like that one count and count for a lot more often than a stream of facts and figures um, and much as academically minded people like you and i might love our facts and figures and 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 hope that facts and figures have some traction actually the human mind is not well attuned to them we're not very good at processing the data that comes at us because the world is so phenomenally complicated that if we were to try to understand it through the processing of data we'd be immediately overwhelmed so we use shortcuts heuristics called stories and our narrative instinct is really an instinct for navigating the world in comprehensible ways. This is why stories appeal to us and resonate with us in the same way that music does. It sort of taps into some deep uh, mental patterns and it engages our minds in, in ways to which we are prepared. We, we, our minds are prepared to hear stories. And big political narratives are absolutely critical to change. You cannot change anything of any significance without telling a story that embeds the change you are trying to create. I mean, the the I guess my problem with that as a I guess 
I'm trying to think why I've got such an aversion. I think it's because I I, I did theater and got so tired of the you know, the Pat Aristotelian narrative and the well-made play. And then I read people like Ibsen and Brecht who were arguing about, you know, break the story, you know, and and, and you break through the story. You don't give them the the reversal and the recognition and the climax. You deny that so that people go out into the street and fight. You know, you end up with this kind of dry didactic, uh, uh, form of well some form of storytelling but it's it it doesn't satisfy the audience it it satisfies that 10% of great marxists who already agree with you um but it's really hard but uh, but on the other hand it, it feels as if the story the story is going to lead people more toward the the fascist narrative than the more difficult ones that people actually need to uh to engage with to make the world better well the, the alternative to the right story is not no story at all. We can't cope without stories. We can't survive without stories. We make sense of the world through stories. If if we don't tell, if progressives and, and radicals do not tell the right story, then someone else is going to come along and tell their story. And the fascists are very good at telling their story. They tell it with great panache. Mm. And it is a restoration story. So, you know, my contention in the book is that the narrative that works well in politics is not any old narrative, it's the same narrative. It's a restoration story, which says, disorder afflicts the land, caused by powerful and nefarious forces working against the interests of humanity. But the heroes of the story, who might be one person, might be a group of people, might be an institution, will confront those powerful and nefarious forces against the odds, overthrow them and restore order to the land. Now, you can use that narrative structure for good or for ill, but basically you need that narrative structure if you're going to precipitate political change. It's been a consistent feature of just about every political and religious transformation in the past few thousand years. However far back you go, you'll see that restoration story, that structure being used again and again and in completely different ways. And the fascists use it, say, you know, they say disorder afflicts the land caused by the powerful and nefarious forces of Jewish bankers or Muslim immigrants or whoever the, the villain of the day might be. But the heroes of the story, who are the fascist movements marching together, will confront these forces and against the odds overthrow them and restore order to the land in the form of purity, racial purity, authenticity, the um, getting back to the roots of who we, the the in-group, consider ourselves to be. And it's very much a, a restoration story that they're using. And if we stand back and say, well, okay, they're using a story, but we're better than that. We're going to use facts and figures. We're not going to win. They're going to win. Because people are constantly listening out, not for facts and figures, but listening out for a story that appears to make sense of their lives. And I believe that our task, as progressives, radicals, whatever you want to call us, our task is to tell a story rooted in fact, grounded in the real world, which contains the uh, messages that that we want people to hear, but that makes powerful narrative sense in the same way as the, the most effective restoration stories have made in the past. 
Right. I mean, of course, the trick with this is if we move into a may the best story win political landscape, which I guess you're arguing we're there anyway, you know, <laughs> that's yeah. that's yeah. the way it is. Yeah. Um, the the how do we how I mean, then then the the fate of uh, the fate of our progress, the fate of humanity rests on who's going to be the best storyteller, you know, who's going to, and, and I feel like on a certain level, I mean, we're at a disadvantage because our story, if, if we are somewhat bound by facts in our story, then we don't have the room for fantasy Mm. that they do. In other words, if the story of, uh, maybe it, it can, but the story of climate change, what's really going on is, um, well, there is still some small chance that we can avert extinction of our species if we deny ourselves all these planes and airports and <laughs> and other things yeah. and start. I mean, we could try to make it happy and say, look, veganism is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, not having a car, learning to know your neighbors. Maybe you're going to get laid more because you're going to work less and travel less and get less rate. But it's a harder story than pedal to the metal. Let's keep going. We're going to have rocket ships on Mars. Um, do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I, I'm, I'm concerned. I, I worry about that. And I worry about the question of if these stories really are myths, if we're just constructing myths around now facts, we're connecting things in ways that ultimately aren't true. They're just provisional narratives around things that we create in order in order to communicate, in order to help them make sense to to another organism. But it's very easy for people to mistake the narrative for the reality. Mm. Well, all these are valid objections. You know, I don't um, disagree fundamentally with anything you're saying, though I believe there are ways through it. And mm. w- when it comes to what is true and what is not, of course, you know, we, it's absolutely essential that we are faithful to the facts and that we ground any story we tell in what is actually happening and where we actually stand, which would certainly make a nice change. When you look at the neoliberal story, it's grounded in a total fantasy that human beings are primarily selfish and greedy and that um, we engage primarily through competition is completely untrue. Right. It might have been just about excusable in 1651 when Hobbes wrote Leviathan and he'd just come out of the English Civil War and he believed in the doctrine of original sin and his understanding of evolutionary psychology was confined to the book of Genesis. But today, the entire body of psychology, of neuroscience, of anthropology, of evolutionary biology tells us it's completely wrong. Exactly. I'm there. I'm there with you. Right. And yeah. and this is what um, Team Human, my, my new book is, you know, the, the whole opening yeah. is about that. And I'm trying to do it, though, and, and to tell the story that, you know, evolution is a team sport. If human yeah. beings are the most evolved species, yeah. it's because yeah. we're social, because we develop language, because yeah. we work together, yeah. you know, and yeah. that while there are certain stories of apex predators like a cougar or a cheetah that lives alone, um, uh, well, if we're above them, it's because we have we develop teamwork. Yeah. Now, you know, even the, it turns out even cougars uh, do teamwork, and people didn't know this until two years ago. But there's been some fascinating new, <laughs> new research on cougars 
demonstrating through camera traps and the rest that they actually engage in teamwork and nobody knows. Oh, good. <laughs> then I don't need to use them as an exception to what I'm talking. I can take that out. Good. But thank you for killing another exception to this supposed rule. But the temptation, though, is to then fall into another sort of mythic narrative of, oh, you know, people, when we were hunters and gatherers, we all just got along. And, you know, there's this, this belief since the 1980s, which has now been been uh, overturned that hunter gatherers worked fewer hours than uh, uh, people after agriculture, which is is nice. I mean, it was equivalent, um, but it, it was the same. <laughs> you know, there were other problems with turning to agriculture, but you know what I mean. We move into then these these sort of new narratives, uh, mm. at, at compensatory narratives, rather than being able to sort of stay on the straight and narrow and say. Now, there's evidence for this, but there's also evidence for that. And, yeah. the, you know, use this story as, as long as it serves you, but the story doesn't encapsulate reality itself. Well, look, we, we don't have to tell a new story of the past. It's a new story of the future we, that, mm. that, that our task is to tell. And in telling it, if we tell it right, we can make it true. You know, that's the really exciting, right. the thrilling thing about a, a, a story well told. And in fact, that has happened many times before. If you look at the social democratic story, particularly as told by John Maynard Keynes's general theory and the sort of rise of social democracy building on that, that story became true through the telling. It was through the practice of taxing and regulating the very rich and redistributing wealth through public services and a social safety net which enabled people then um, to get out of debt and to get jobs, which then distributed wealth further and created a sort of virtuous circle of, of social democratic capitalism. All that became true through practice. It wouldn't work for the 21st century, not least because it's growth-based and we're in the midst of an ecological crisis, but it, it worked then and it worked tremendously well. And that story was told into being. Now, I believe we can do the same. And and the story I want to tell is firmly grounded in fact, but it's it's a sort of fact incipient. It's fact which is waiting to happen, but there's no reason at all for it not to happen. And and it goes like this. It's that disorder afflicts the land caused by the powerful and nefarious forces of neoliberalism, which by insisting that we are at our best when we are alone, that we are defined by competition, that we are fundamentally selfish and greedy, has set us apart and atomized society and created an age of loneliness in which we're alienated not just from our labor, not just uh, from the living world, not just from society, but also from ourselves, leading to psychic rupture, the epidemic of mental ill health that we see now happening around the world. But we, the heroes of the story, by coming together and rebuilding community, can create a politics of belonging, a politics based in the transfer of both wealth and power out of the hands of elites, back into the hands of communities, the rebuilding of the commons, the rebuilding um, of genuine participatory democracy, participatory economics. And in doing so, we can restore order to the land. Now, I don't see this as a pipe dream because I see it in practice with examples of that happening around the world, but they're so far disaggregated. There's sort of you know, wonderful stuff going on in Reykjavik with participatory democracy, amazing stuff mm. going on in Porto Alegre in Brazil, 
uh, with participatory economics, participatory budgeting, some um, fantastic things with political transformation and community control of politics taking place in the Kurdish part of Syria. Uh, there's all sorts of exciting things happening. The, the task is to bring these together into a coherent narrative, into a political program arising from that narrative, and to actually darn well make it happen. And I believe it's one of those stories which can be told into being, that by telling the story with sufficient power in a way that engages people, in a way that can reach people across the political spectrum, because interestingly, about the only two words which appeal equally to people on the left and the right, and as well as in the centre, are community and belonging. Those are the only two words. We might interpret them slightly differently, but at least we're talking the same language. At least we're not riling each other up just by the very words we use. Right. Just about everyone says, oh, yeah, community, that's a good thing. Belonging, that's a good thing. And they might be thinking of something different, but you've lodged the words, you've lodged the concepts. And then you can say, well, what this really means is the following. But, you know, you haven't lost everyone from, from the outset by using the wrong words. The interesting thing is the the other side, if we want to even call it that, the uh, say Trump and the far, far right today, they are uh, succeeding in telling their story partly, and it's ironic to say this because we think of Trump as the Twitter president, but because they're using real world spaces and rallies and people coming together. Do you believe that the internet with the the fractious intentionally atomized platforms that we're attempting to use. Um, do you believe the internet is the is an inappropriate medium to try to tell this story and to to build the sorts of solidarity that we need, uh, you know, to, to have this story resonate? It's both salvation and disaster all rolled into one, isn't it? Because, mm. because in principle, it gives us a fantastic opportunity to coordinate. I, I remember reading the history of the radical movements in the 1640s in England, the diggers and the levellers who proposed stuff which in some cases still hasn't happened, uh, but they mm. were for full emancipation of everybody, including women, which was highly unusual in those days. You know, it was one person, one vote, with all sorts of amazing democratic innovations, and as I say, some of which still haven't come about, it was an extremely radical program which was being pursued by some of these groups. But what would happen is that one lot would rise up in one part of the country, all the troops um, would, would turn up and, and suppress them, and by that time, the news had traveled that there was a rising, and another lot would say, oh, right, well, there's a rising, let's join it. And they would rise up, and then they would be picked off, and because the news took so long to travel, they could all be picked off one by one rather than rising simultaneously, whereupon mm. it, they would have been unstoppable because um, the, the people were so much behind the programs which some of these radicals were putting forward. But you know, because they weren't able to communicate instantaneously, and, and I was sort of sitting there thinking, oh, God, I wish I had the internet. This would have been such a different country if they did. But then you start thinking, yeah, now let's imagine they did have the internet. They probably would have all fallen out with each other, um, slagging each other off on Twitter. So it's a double-edged weapon. You know, it can be used for, for tremendous good. And it definitely is a fantastic way of drawing people's attention 
to, to stuff of democratizing the media, which, you know, is for the most part our great enemy, controlled by billionaires, promoting the agenda of billionaires. But at the same time, of course, it's, you know, what the internet does better than anything else is comparison. And it mm. almost turns the neoliberal mythology into reality because it's constantly saying, oh, that person's got more followers than I have. Whoa, why they? Mm-hmm. How do they deserve more followers? They're just an idiot. Or what are all these? This, look at this person's Facebook friends. Or, oh, God, her image looks so much better than mine. You know, you're just constantly comparing yourself. And that's, I, I think that undermines our sense of self, our, our, our confidence, um, our um, uh, desire to combine with other people. Um, I think it's almost the most corrosive force there's ever, there's ever been. Do you think you'd, it does it in a way that makes us nauseous enough to take heed? <laughs> in other words, by making it so apparent, uh, it feels as if it's almost a primer in how not to compare and contrast. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is not making me happy. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> maybe yeah. I'm going to stop this. The trouble is, you know, it, uh, particularly, you know, if you start young, it reaches people before they've really got their defenses up. You, you know, um, right. teenagers, kids are, are are much more susceptible to this stuff because they don't have the impulse control that older people have. And and when you're hooked in, it's just really hard to get out again. I know a few people have done it. I haven't done it myself. I mean, I still feel I get more from it than I lose, but I don't know. Maybe I'm deceiving myself. I mean, it's... It's also that the the technology itself creates spectacle around whoever's telling their story through it. You know, so someone uh, telling a story through a new medium like Twitter or on Facebook or with the Netflix, whatever it is, when it's a new medium, there's a kind of a sparkle around it that that is entrancing. And and as as you told the story, the well, whether it's the social democrat story or the the neoliberal story of of redemption, I guess of of, of disorder, uh, disorder through redemption, and I I was reminded of um, the original Star Wars mm-hmm. uh, trilogy, mm-hmm. and there's this moment when um, Luke and and what's his and Han Solo they're taken prisoner by these little teddy bear creatures, the the Ewoks. Yes. And there's this late night, you know, Princess Leia comes and they set them free and they sit around the campfire and C-3PO and R2-D2, the two robots, end up telling the story of the rebellion to these little Ewok creatures around the campfire. And they're using special effects and sounds and all. And as a result of telling this story about the evil empire and the great rebels, the Ewoks are convinced to fight a war on behalf of the rebels yeah. against Darth Vader. And, you know, and, and Ewoks die, you know, they get run over and yeah. hit against trees and weep for each other. And as I was watching that as a, whatever, 14 year old, 12 year old boy, I was thinking, what if Darth Vader had gotten down to the moon of Endor and told his story to the Ewoks first with his special effects? There, there was, <laughs> it, it, and it has, troubled me to this day yeah. and that fear reemerged as i read your work which i i agree with i also hear republican pollster frank luntz in my head who when i met him and asked him uh, how could he do what he does yeah. a- and he said look doug if you want your side to win you better do the same thing do you want to win or not 
you know, and it was all about George Lakoff and creating framing around ideas. And it, mm. as a person who studied propaganda, I've always had this some deeply held belief somewhere in there that this is unfair, that using rhetoric rather than uh, uh, truth is somehow cheating and, and puts us... Uh, uh, then we're fighting against Darth Vader for, you know, first access or best access to the people who, who to, to listen to our story. Yeah. Look, I, I hear you, Douglas. I really do. But <laughs> we're human beings. Yeah. <laughs> if you can find life on a distant planet which operates on different principles, then let's do it on those principles. But, yeah. We, we, yeah, we, we do story. I guess this we is the question is, is, do you, is there, can I, can you help me believe that ultimately the best story, the most winning story is going to also be the one that's best for us to hear mm. or to follow? <laughs> is there some intrinsic <laughs> betterness well, in the good narrative? Well, look, this is my aim. Look, I'm, I'm not going into this. Um, in in the hope that I've just happened to tell the best story, I'm trying to recruit the best storytellers to help me tell it, so that we it is the mm-hmm. best story. So, yeah, look, I completely hear what you say. <laughs> that, you know, um, some total rogue could come along with a fantastic bunch of screenwriters and and framers and cognitive linguists and neuropsychologists and all the rest of it, and come up with the perfect story. Um, they're doing it right yeah, now. Yeah, I mean, are. that's yeah. what we're seeing. That's yeah. television commercials. No, that's no, no, that's no. exactly exactly. So it happens. It happens. But <laughs> we're not going to make that go away. And and right. you know, by by abjuring from that game, we're not going to um, throw the game. That game is going to continue. It's 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 becoming ever more effective because you know they do deploy exactly those people as you say the advertisers the marketers whether it's political advertisers or whether it's commercial advertisers you know, they are brilliant at this stuff but yeah and if they watch one of your talk if they don't read one of your books but if they just watch certain ones of your talks i'm sure they send an email saying hey do you want to work on the campaign for the new cable company I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, i can I'm still, still get those for that letter <laughs> I, I have words with the postman they obviously it obviously got lost somewhere <laughs> Yeah, but look, I mean, of course, and look, and I'm not saying that we approach this with the same spirit of cynicism that, right. that they operate in. Not at all. It's quite the opposite, because you know, like you, my you know, my loyalty is to the facts, is getting it right, and you know, often I've got it wrong in the past, you know, and and the key task for people like us is always to fess up if we get it wrong. And to try to get it right next time, you know, we're, we're, we're not born right. We're not born with the facts at our fingertips. So you have to spend a lifetime working on it and acquiring it and correcting yourself when you get it wrong. And perhaps the, about the only virtue I have is a capacity for self-correction. And so you know, mm. I want this to be grounded in reality. And I'm not saying that reality and facts are completely worthless i'm saying that they have to be embedded in a narrative so that people can see them and hear them because if you only confront people with the facts and the figures they just bounce straight off but if you can embed those within a powerful narrative then you've got the double whammy of having the powerful narrative but also being able to defend 
the facts and the story that that powerful narrative tells. Because, you know, we are able, and we've been far too slow to do this, but finally people are waking up to it, to confront neoliberalism by saying, actually, your whole story is just a bunch of codswallop. It doesn't stand up at all. It, there's no scientific evidence, whatever, for what you're telling us about who we are and how we behave. When you look at the science, you find it's completely the opposite of what you're saying. And and so you, you can therefore erode and undermine a story by showing that it is factually wrong, but you don't get anywhere unless you replace right. that story with a better one. And, and exactly right. what and that, but it's hard to resist. I mean, and, and I guess what I was taught was to resist that temptation. So, you know, I can go and show all the game theory that they use to explain the prisoner's dilemma and all. Every time they do an experiment, they find, no, people don't behave that way. You know, that, that he was wrong, that it was all doctors, that people actually choose a, a <laughs> they choose a collaborative, cooperative path, yeah. even at risk of self-harm. And even if they're not going to do as well. Yeah. Individually, they always invariably and and they always dispense with that evidence saying, oh, well, that's because they were women or that's because they were, you know, they were raised wrong or their secretaries or every time they do it, they have another excuse. Okay, so we know factually. So then what I've generally what I do is something uh, similar to what 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 you do or what you're advocating is saying, okay. Maybe this is what's happening, you know, and, and I do it to the past too, you know, atoms come together into molecules, molecules came together into organelles and organisms, and now organisms collaborate together and neoliberalism came along and their digital technology came along and divided us into separate actors. They atomized us and convinced us to act in self-interest. But now, you know, with that, we are under real threat. Now that this individualism threatens not just the fabric of society, but the planet and the biosphere itself, now we are going to join together. You know, we're going to release the shackles of digital imprisonment and, and come together in groups, just look into people's eyes. And that's the beginning of the new social social relationship that was spread from person to group to town to city to the world and the 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 climatologists laugh at me and the the scientists i mean i'm sure you you deal with the same thing saying oh you know you read another joseph campbell book you know and you i see the people they do these ted talks and they have little leather bracelets on and they've done a lot of ayahuasca and they you know you know what i mean and they have the mythic narrative and they've read return of the whatever and the eternal uh myth of eternal return and somehow it's got to be more uh, grounded and compelling than uh i guess than the current people who are trying to tell that story yeah um look of, of, of course that's true there's various ways of coming at this, but you know, with something like climate change, we have the technologies required to make most of that shift. We also need behavioral shift as well, but we know what those behavioral shifts are. But it's not going to happen unless people feel that someone like me is the sort of person who engages in this shift. And at the moment, because we haven't understood the necessity for storytelling, we've been saying, this is going to happen despite you. This is going to happen despite the stories you tell yourself, despite where you see yourself on earth, despite what you see as your aspirations and the rest of it. And you're just going to have to lump it. Well, that's a very alienating message and it hasn't worked. So <laughs> yeah, what's essential yeah. with climate, climate breakdown, as I call it, because climate change is like calling an invading army unexpected visitors. 
what's essential here is that we actually create an embedding story into which we can put the necessary behavioral and technological change so that people feel, yeah, that feels right to me. That feels like the kind of person I am, that I, I do that. I live like that. And there are some very clever people, such as George Marshall, who are, are working on doing precisely that and working on finding stories which actually work for conservatives as well as for, for, for liberals and radicals and progressives um, so that um, you can actually treat almost everyone as a potential convert to the cause, but you can only do so through that narrative shift. Now, you know, just to illustrate the, the need for this, because you know, while I, I completely hear everything you're saying and I don't fundamentally disagree with any of it, look at what happens when we don't do it. And a classic example of what happens when we don't do it is 2008, where we had the complete implosion of neoliberalism. Everything it claimed, the um, markets are far more efficient than the state, you've got to deregulate financial services and the rest of it, and that will generate prosperity and that will make everyone happy and the invisible hand of the market will sort it all out for us uh, and society should be run like a business and because businesses have got everything right. All that stuff just, poof, it explodes. And as Alan Greenspan mm -hmm. was forced to admit, there was a flaw in the theory. So what happens? We're stuck with neoliberalism. Still, 10 years on, it's still, it's, in fact, it's neoliberalism on speed. I know. And you would have thought Obama, of yeah, all yeah. people, we are the change we've been Absolutely. waiting for, that he would have been the one. All he had to do is distribute a PDF yeah. over the Internet of how to do local currency yeah, and favor does. banks. And instead, he bailed out Goldman Absolutely. Sachs. And he used, he used the foreclosed homeowners to, to foam the runway for, for, for the banks. I mean, it was just... Because he was still in the Hayekian narrative. Yeah. He was still believing Thatcher. But he didn't. Well, it, no, it wasn't so much that he actively believed in neoliberalism. He didn't have a new story of his own. So this is a point I'm making, is that you can very effectively debunk and discredit and deconstruct the old story and show, well, it's wrong for this reason, that reason, and the other reason. Here are all the reasons why neoliberalism doesn't make any sense. But unless you've got a new story with which to replace it, you just get stuck with the old story because we're listening for stories. It's stories which make political change. And at the moment, there just hasn't been a coherent and effective and compelling new story from progressives or from radicals which is going to replace neoliberalism. And so this is why, you know, the reason why I wrote this book, the whole reason why I stepped into this is my intense frustration of seeing this discredited, uh, debunked, defunct, bankrupt religion of neoliberalism still ruling our lives, even though we know it's all wrong, even though we know it makes no sense, even though we know that it greatly empowers the rich and powerful while, while, while freezing everybody else out. We know all that, right. and yet it's still there. Why is it still there? The reason is that we haven't told the story that replaces it. You cannot take away someone's story without giving them a new one. The only right. Well, this is the problem. Story is a story. Exactly. So you know, in the in the last election cycle, twenty sixteen, I'm I'm trying to communicate to the Sanders people or even the Clinton people saying, look, it's not enough, particularly the Sanders people. It's not enough to say 
the billionaires are bad. The billionaires are bad. The billionaires are bad. Let's be against them. But I was trying to help him see, look, we've got to move from a growth-based economy to a flow-based economy, from a, an economy based in how to extract capital from working towns and instead circulate capital, circulate you know, uh, currency in order to lead to widespread real-time prosperity. And I had so many ways to talk about it, moving money from a noun, money t- to a verb. Um, yep. And it was as if they were afraid to move past negatives. Yeah. The Clinton people don't want to hear anything except, and now it's the the left, they don't want to hear anything except tell us negatives about Trump. So discredit his story or discredit the neoliberal story rather than um, tell us what it is we can do mm-hmm. because they don't want to put anything positive out there as if that positive thing is going to get critiqued. Yeah. It's almost this fear to 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 assert something to take uh to take charge of the future as something we create in the present rather than just something we happen to passively arrive at in the future i see this too and it makes me so frustrated uh, in in the uk it's changing you know the labor party is on an active search now for new framings new narratives new ideas and for a, a positive propositional platform rather than just the the negative oppositional one. Look, you know, we need to fight the bad stuff, but we are so much more effective at fighting the bad stuff if we've got a vision of the good stuff to lead people towards. And then you say, we just have to get the bad stuff out of the way, and then we can get to to, to the, the, the promised uplands where, which we're heading for. But un- unless you've got that vision, you're just always going to be forced back. It's going to be constant retreat and retrenchment because you are playing to the other side's agenda. You're responding to their agenda. You have to force the other side to respond to your agenda by having an agenda, by having a story which is so powerful, so compelling, that it becomes the new common sense. And that if anybody um, doesn't like that common sense, they have to produce a very powerful argument for why they don't like that common sense, rather than um, this current situation where neoliberalism remains the common sense, even though it, it's so discredited, and we just hurl ourselves against it and, and fall over again because we're not telling the, we're not using that deadly weapon which will knock neoliberalism out of the water, which is a new narrative. Do you think, uh, I mean, you, you find value in fictional narratives as well. I mean, I heard you once speaking about. Um, the impact that the book The Road mm-hmm. had on you. And it had tremendous impact on me too, but I didn't realize that w- until you said it, that part of the power of it is it reversed the sort of, it reversed the disaster movie, that growing up the disaster was always, you know, the day of the mm-hmm. triffids or the birds yeah, or the rats coming mean. and killing us. Nature, nature as this invading enemy. And The Road... There's no nature. It's like the problem is there's nothing. (laughs) Which is the real real horror story. So, you know, the horror story is always there was too much nature. We're going to be overwhelmed by nature. All of those previous disaster movies told that story. But the idea that there would be no nature to support us, well, that's a far more chilling narrative and one where there's no way out. And, in fact, um, the movie slightly sort of sold out at the end, I felt, by by suggesting there was a way out. No, sorry, if there's no biosphere, there's no way out. <laughs> there's nothing. There's, there's no possibility of, of recovering. You can recover from war. You can recover from 
genocide, you can recover from plague, however horrendous they might be, society can come back, civilization can come back. But if there's no biosphere, there is no coming back. There's no coming back at all. There's nothing except eating each other, and that can't last for very long. Right. And it was also a great metaphor for um, for uh, uh, corporatism, because, you know, when once a corporation grows to a certain size, it has to cannibalize itself in order yeah. to grow. They start selling off their most productive assets. Yeah. You know, it was sort of the General Electric story when, when – Jack Welch, the CEO of GE, realized he made more money lending money to people to buy a washing machine than he did actually manufacturing one. So he sold off the appliance business and became a bank. So he's basically increasing his bottom line by selling himself up, which is really the story of the road where the only way you can find nutrition is by capturing that's someone right. and eating that's them right. that's right i know no, it's true i mean yeah we know capitalism is one big pyramid scheme and it has to eat itself it has to ultimately destroy itself because it's based on a finite planet whose resources are not growing alongside the growth of the economy and so eventually you know all it is doing is sucking future resources to pay to pay the present bills Right. I mean, and that's why in some ways I'm more comfortable with fictional mm. stories, at least because we're disclosing at the beginning. I feel like Shakespeare saying, you know, pardon gentles all that this stage, you know, would represent, the, the, you know, oh, for a muse of fire, this, this uh, apologetic prologue or even Martin Luther King saying, I have a dream yes. is his way of saying, I'm now going to tell you an alternative yeah. story to the one of our well, oppression. I'm, I'm not making any bones about this. I'm, I'm not claiming not to have a story. I'm, you know, that in my book, I basically say, I have a story here. Is. Exactly. And, and, you know, we have to be honest about that. The neoliberals were not honest about it. They were saying we have a, an accurate description of human nature. Of course, it wasn't. It was an, it was a restoration story, which was as inaccurate as you could get. But they were claiming that this wasn't a story; it was a description. It was, you know, right. they, they were never honest enough to say this is a story of how the world could change. They were saying this is a description of the world as it is, and it will inevitably go this way because that that's the nature of the world. Well, no, there are lots of possible paths you can take, and narrative will help determine that. Uh, one other thing I would I would be interested to hear you on, particularly in the in the realm of narrative, is a lot of social scientists and communications theorists, the kind of people I hang out with, think that you know the story has collapsed and now people are only responding to sort of fragmented memes, and that you know that all of this sort of discon disconnected and and decontextualized media is hitting us all, and and that we're sort of losing, or young people in particular are use, losing the ability to do. Uh, to connect ideas and to do pattern recognition. And that's why it's going to be hard to get people to think in the sort of long-term ways um, that, that we're encouraging them to think. Do you, do you think that that's true? Or do you think that still the story is what's going to compel people in the I, end? I, I think there's something to that. Um, but I don't think we've lost our narrative instinct. I think this is much deeper than any passing fad um, and much deeper than any immediate effect on people's minds. And we have an instinct to seek patterns. In fact, there's a magnificent book published recently by Jeremy Lent called The Pattern Instinct. He was on the show oh, last month. Yeah. Right. It, there you are. Pattern there you Instinct. Are. No, I, I yeah, love it's that wonderful. Book. It's changed my life. It's an amazing book. Um, and, um, you know, and he, I think, very persuasively says, look, there are deep, deep patterns of cognition that affect us regardless of the immediacies of our social environment. Um, and, and and I think those, you know, despite, uh, you know, what you're saying is not 
untrue, you know, yes, it is you know, much harder to grab people's sustained attention than it was before. But that doesn't mean we've lost those fundamental underlying instincts. Well, I agree with you. And I, I actually, I, I thank you for the conversation because what I've been wrestling with over the last months is, is precisely the question of whether it's, it's legitimate and appropriate to continue to assemble stories in order to motivate people and, and generate some, some solidarity. And, and I think doing it in a transparent way saying, look, how about this story? Um, rather than this, this sort of descent into faux reality television, this, uh, you know, it's very interesting. It, it, it really is Adorno's nightmare of the, of the, the culture industry mm. with, that they're claiming reality uh, through, <laughs> through this fictionalized television. Um, and, and we're off on the, on the sidelines, or I am anyway, debating whether or not it's even fair yeah. <laughs> to use a narrative structure to, to tell the yeah. truth. I, I know I thank you for that and and uh, for having thought through so many of these these issues. It was great and thank you for for being on on Team <laughs> Human, um, which is a myth. It's a myth, but it's a good one. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was George Monbio, author of Out of the Wreckage. You can find out more about him at monbio.com. That's m o n b i o t dot com. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peace. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.